0: Hello and welcome to the 80s movie podcast. I'm your host Edward Havens. Thank you for listening today. If you were a young adult in the late 1980s, there's a very good chance that you started reading more adult books thanks to an imprint called Vintage Contemporaries. Quality books at an affordable paperback price point with their uniform and intrinsically 80s designed covers, bold cover and spine fonts, and a mix of first-time writers and cult authors who never quite broke through to the mainstream. The vintage contemporary series would be an immediate hit when it was first launched in September of 1984. The first set of releases would include such novels as Raymond Carver's Cathedral and Thomas McGain's The Bushwhack Piano. But the one that would set the bar for the entire series was the first novel by a 29-year-old former fact-checker at the New Yorker magazine. The writer was Jay McInerney, And his novel was Bright Lights, Big City. Bright Lights, Big City would set a template for 20-something writers in the 1980s, with a protagonist not unlike the writer themselves, with a not-so-secret drug addiction, and often written in the second person, You, which was not a usual literary choice at the time. The nameless protagonist of Bright Lights, Big City, You, is a divorced 24-year-old wannabe writer who works as a fact-checker at a major upscale magazine in New York City, for which he once dreamed of writing for. You is recently divorced from Amanda, an aspiring model he met while going to school in Kansas City. You had moved to New York City earlier in the year with her, when her modeling career was starting to take off. While in Paris for Fashion Week, Amanda called you to inform them their marriage was over, and that she was leaving him for another man. Yu continues to hope Amanda will return to him, and when it's clear she won't, he not only becomes obsessed with everything about her that is left in their apartment, he begins to slide into reckless abandon at the clubs they used to frequent, and becomes heavily addicted to cocaine, which then affects his performance at work. A chance encounter with Amanda at an event in the city leads Yu to a public humiliation which makes him start to realize that his behavior is not because his wife left him, but a manifestation of the grief he still feels over his mother's passing the previous year. You had gotten married to a woman he hardly knew because he wanted to make his mother happy before she died. And he was unconsciously grieving when his wife's leaving him triggered his downward spiral. Bright Lights Big City was an immediate hit, one of the few paperback-only books to ever hit the New York Times bestseller chart. Within two years, the novel had sold more than three hundred thousand copies and spawned a tidal wave of like-minded twenty-something writers becoming published. Bret Easton Ellis might have been able to get his first novel less than zero published somewhere down the line, but it was McInerney's success that would cause Simon and Schuster to try and duplicate Vintage's success, which they would. Same with Tama Janowitz, whose 1986 novel *The Slaves of New York* was picked up by Crown Publishers, looking to replicate the success of McInerney and Ellis, despite her previous novel, 1981's American Dad, being completely ignored by the book-buying public at that time. While the book took moments from his life, it wasn't necessarily autobiographical. For example, McInerney had been married to a fashion model in the early 1980s, but they would meet while he attended Syracuse University in the late 70s. And yes, McInerney would do a lot of blow during his divorce from his wife, And yes, he would get fired from the New Yorker because of the effects of his drug addiction. Yes, he was partying pretty hard during the times that preceded the writing of his first novel. And yes, he would meet a young woman who would kind of rescue him and get him on the right path. But there would be a number of details about Mac and Ernie's life that were not used for the book, like how the author studied writing with none other than Raymond Carver while studying creative writing at Syracuse, or how his family connections would allow him to submit blind stories to someone like George Plimpton at the Paris Review, and not only get the story read, but published. And naturally, any literary success was going to become a movie at some point. For Bright Lights, Big City it would happen almost as soon as the novel was published. Lawrence Robert, a vice president at Columbia Pictures in his early 30s, had read the book nearly cover to cover in a single sitting, and envisioned a film that could be the graduate of his generation with maybe a little bit of Lost Weekend thrown in. But the older executives at the studio balked at the idea, which they felt would be subversive and unconventional. They would, however, buy in when Lawrence was able to get mega-producer Jerry Weintraub to become a producer on the film, who in turn was able to get Joel Schumacher, who had just finished filming St. Elmo's Fire for the studio, to direct, and get Tom Cruise, who was still two years away from Top Gun and Mega Stardom, to play the main character. McInerney was hired to write the script, and he and Schumacher and Cruz would even go on club crawls in New York City to help inform all of them of the atmosphere that they were trying to capture with the film. In 1985, Weintraub would be hired by United Artist to become their new chief executive, and Bright Lights would be one of the properties he would be allowed to take with him to his new home. But since now he was an executive, Weintraub would need to hire a new producer to take the reins on the picture. Enter Sidney Pollack. By 1985, Pollack was one of the biggest directors in Hollywood. With films like They Shoot Horses, Don't They, Jeremiah Johnson, Three Days of the Condor, The Electric Horseman, and Tootsie Under His Belt, Pollack could get a film made and get it seen by audiences. At least as a director. At this point in his career, he had only ever produced one movie. Alan Rudolph's 1984 musical drama Songwriter which, despite being based on the life of Willie Nelson, and starring Nelson, and Chris Christopherson, and Rip Torn, barely grossed a tenth of its $8 million budget. And Pollock at that moment was busy putting the finishing touches on his newest film, an African-based drama featuring Meryl Streep and longtime Pollock collaborator Robert Redford. That film out of Africa would win seven Academy Awards, including Best Picture and Best Director in March of 1986, which would keep Pollock and his producing partner Mark Rosenberg's attention away from Bright Lights for several months. Once the hype on Out of Africa died down, Pollock and Rosenberg got to work getting Bright Lights Big City made, starting with hiring a new screenwriter, a new director, and a new leading actor. Mack Schumacher, and Cruz had gotten tired of waiting. Ironically, Cruz would call on Pollock to direct another movie he was waiting to make, also based at United Artists, that he was going to star in alongside Dustin Hoffman. That movie, of course, is Rain Man. And we'll dive into that movie another time. Also ironically, Weintraub would not last long as the CEO of United Artists. Just five months after becoming the head of the studio, Weintraub would tire of the antics of Kirk Kerkorian, the owner of United Artists and its sister company, MGM, and stepped down. Kerkorian would not let Weintraub take any of the properties he brought from Columbia to his new home, the eponymously named mini major he would form with backing from Columbia Pictures. With the new studio head in place, Pollock started to look for a new director. He would discover that director, Joyce Chopra, who, after 20 years of making documentaries, made her first dramatic narrative in 1985. Smooth Talk was an incredible coming-of-age drama, based on a story by Joyce Carol Oates that would make a star out of the then 17-year-old Laura Dern. United Artists would not only hire her to direct the film, but hire her husband, Tom Cole, who brilliantly adapted the Oates story that was the basis for Smooth Talk, to co-write the screenplay with his wife. While Cole was working on the script, Chopper would have her agent send a copy of McInerney's book to Michael J. Fox. This wasn't just some random decision. Chopper knew she needed a star for this movie, and Fox's agent just happened to be her agent. That would be two commissions for the agent if it came together, and a copy of the book was delivered to Fox's dressing room on the Family Ties soundstage that very day. Fox loved the book and agreed to do the film. After Alex P. Keaton and Marty McFly and other characters he had played that highlighted his good looks and pleasant demeanor, he was ready to play a darker, more morally ambiguous character. And since the production was scheduled around Fox's summer hiatus from the hit TV show, he was in. For Pollock and United Artists, this was a major coup, landing one of the biggest stars in Hollywood. But the project was originally going to be shot in Toronto, standing in for New York City, for less than $7 million with a lesser-known cast. That was going to be a $15 million movie with not only Michael J. Fox, but Kiefer Sutherland, who was cast as Tad, the best friend of the formerly named you, who would now be known as Jamie Conway, and would be shot on location in New York City. The film would also feature Phoebe Cates as Jamie's model ex-wife, William Hickey, and Kelly Lynch. But there was a major catch. The production would only have 10 weeks to shoot with Fox, as he was due back in Los Angeles to begin production on the sixth season of Family Ties. He wasn't going to do that thing he did making a movie and a television show at the same time like he did with Back to the Future and Family Ties in 1984 and 1985. They had ten weeks, and not a day more. Production on the film would begin on April 13th, 1987, to get as much of the film shot while Fox was still finishing Family Ties in Los Angeles. He would be joining the production at the end of the month. But Fox never got the chance to shoot with Chopra. After three weeks of production, Chopra, her husband, and her cinematographer James Clennan, who had also shot Smooth Talk, were dismissed from the film. The suits at United Artists were not happy with the Foxless footage that was coming out of New York and were not happy with the direction of the film. Cole and Chopra had removed much of the nightlife and drug life storylines and focused more on the development of Jamie as a writer. Apparently, no one at the studio had read the final draft of the script before shooting began. Cole, the screenwriter, says it was Pollock, the producer, who requested the changes. But in the end, it would not be the Oscar-winning filmmaker producing the movie that would be released, but the trio of newer creatives. Second-unit footage would continue to shoot around New York City while the studio looked for a new director. Ironically, days after Chopper was fired, the Directors Guild of America had announced that if they were not able to sign a new agreement with the Producers Guild before the End of the current contract on June 30th, the directors were going on strike. So now United Artists was really under the gun. After considering such filmmakers as Belgian director Ulu Grosbard, who had directed Meryl Streep and Robert De Niro in Falling in Love, and Australian director Bruce Beresford, whose films had included Breaker Morant and Tender Mercies, they would find their new director in James Bridges, whose filmography included such critical and financial successes as The Paper Chase, the China Syndrome, and Urban Cowboy, but had two bombs in a row in 1984's Mike's Murder and 1985's Perfect. He needed a hit, and this was his first solid directing offer in three years. He'd spend the weekend after his hiring doing some minor recasting, including bringing in John Hausman, who had won a Best Supporting Actor Oscar for his role in The Paper Chase, as well as Swoozy Kurtz, Oscar-winning actors Jason Robards and Diane Wiest, and Tracy Pollan, Fox's co-star on Family Ties, who would shortly after the filming of Bright Lights, Big City, become Mrs. Michael J. Fox, although in the film she would be cast not as the love interest to her real-life boyfriend's character, but as the wife of Keeper Sullivan's character. After a week of rewriting McInerney's original draft of the screenplay from the Schumacher days, principal photography recommenced on the film. And since Bridges would be working with famed cinematographer Gordon Willis, who had shot three previous movies with Bridges, as well as the first two Godfather movies and every Woody Allen movie from Annie Hall to The Purple Rose of Cairo, it was decided that none of Chopper's footage would be used. Everything would start back on square one. And because of the impending director's guild strike, he would only have 36 days, a little bit over five weeks, to film everything. and they were able to get it all done, thanks to some ingenious measures. One location, the Palladium Concert Hall on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, would double as three different nightclubs, two discotheques, and a dinner club. Instead of finding six different locations, which would load cameras and lights from one location to another, moving hundreds of people as well, and then setting the lights and props again over and over, all they would have to do is redecorate the area for it to become the next thing they needed. Bridges would complete the film the day before the director's guild strike deadline. But the strike would never happen. But there would be some issues with the final writing credits. While Bridges had used McInerney's original screenplay as a jumping-off point, the writer-director had really latched on to the mother's death as the emotional center of the movie. Bridges' own grandmother had passed away in 1986, and he found writing those scenes to be cathartic for his own unresolved issues. But despite the changes Bridges would make to the script, including adding such filmmaking tropes as flashbacks and voiceovers, and having the movie broken up into sections by using chapter titles being typed out on the screen, the Writers Guild would give sole screenwriting credit to Jay McInerney. As post-production continued through the fall, the one topic no one involved in the production wanted to talk about or even acknowledge, was the movie version of Brett Easton Ellis's Less Than Zero that rival studio 20th Century Fox had been making in Los Angeles. It had a smaller budget, a lesser-known filmmaker, a lesser-known cast led by Andrew McCarthy and Jamie Kurtz, and a budget half the size. If their film was a hit, that could be good for this one. And if their film wasn't a hit, well, Bright Lights was the trendsetter. It was the one that sold more copies, the one that saw its author featured in more magazines and television news shows. How well did Lesson Zero do when it was released in the theaters on November 6, 1987? Well, you're just going to have to wait until next week's episode, unless you're listening months or years after we published this in November of 2022 and are listening to the episodes in reverse order, then you already know how it did. But let's just say it wasn't a hit. But it really wasn't a dud either. Bridges would spend nearly six months putting his film together most of which he would find enjoyable, but he would have trouble deciding which of two endings he shot would be used. His preferred ending saw Jamie wandering through the streets of New York City early one morning, after a long night of partying that included a confrontation with his ex-wife, where he decides that this was the day that he was going to get his life back on track, but not knowing what he was going to do. But the studio had asked for an alternate ending, one that featured Jamie one year in the future, putting the finishing touches on his first novel, which we see is titled, wait for it, Bright Lights Big City, while his new girlfriend stands behind him giving her approval. After several audience test screenings, the studio would decide to let Bridges have his ending. United Artists would have an April 1st, 1988 release date set and would spend months gearing up the publicity machine. Fox and Pollen were busy finishing the final episodes of That Season's Family Ties and weren't as widely available to the publicity circuit outside of those based in Los Angeles. The studio wasn't too worried, though. Michael J. Fox's last movie, The Secret of My Success, had been released in April 1987 and had to gross $67 million, without him doing a lot of publicity for that one either. Opening on 1,196 screens... Bright Lights Big City would only manage to gross $5.13 million, putting it in third place behind the previous week's number one film, Bloxy Blues with Matthew Broderick, and the Tim Burton comedy Beale Juice, which despite opening on nearly 200 fewer screens, would gross nearly $3 million more. But the reviews were not great. They were decent, respectful, but not great. The New York-based critics like David Anson of Newsweek and Janet Maslin of The Times would be kinder than most other critics, maybe because they didn't want to be seen knocking a film shot in their backyard. But one person who would actually praise the film, and Michael J. Fox as an actor, was Roger Ebert. But that wouldn't save the film. In its second week, the film would fall to fifth place with $3.09 million worth of ticket sales sold, and would drop all the way to 10th place in its third week, with just under $1.9 million in ticket sales. Week 4 would see the film fall to 16th place, with only $862,000 worth of ticket sales, and after that, United Artists would stop reporting the grosses. The $17 million budgeted film had grossed just at $16.1 million. Bright Lights, Big City was a milestone book for me, in large part because it made me a reader. Before Bright Lights, I read occasionally, mainly John Irving, preferring to spend most of my free time voraciously consuming every movie I could. After Bright Lights, I picked up every vintage contemporary book I could get my hands on. And one thing that really helped out was the literal checklist of other books available from that imprint in the back of each book. Without those distinct covers, I don't know if I would have discovered some of my favorite authors like Raymond Carver and Don DeLillo. Richard Ford and Richard Russo. And even after the Vintage Contemporary line shut down years later, I continued to read. I still read today, although not as much as I would prefer. I have a podcast to work on. I remember when the movie came out that I wasn't all that thrilled with it. And it would be nearly 35 years before I revisited again for this episode. I can't say it's the 80s as I remember it, because I had never been to New York City by that point in my life. I had never, and still never, have done anything like cocaine, and at that point I had only ever had like two relationships that be, could be considered anything of substance, let alone a marriage and a divorce. But I am certain it's in 80s that I'm glad I didn't know, because mainly Jamie's 80s seemed rather boring and inconsequential. Fox does the best he can with the material, but he's not the right person for this role. As I watched it again, I couldn't help but wonder, what if the roles were reversed? What if Keith Sutherland played Jamie, and Michael J. Fox played the friend? That might have been a more interesting movie, but Sutherland was not yet at that level of stardom. Thank you for joining us. We'll talk again next week when episode 95 on the novel and movie versions of Less Than Zero is released. Remember to visit this episode's page on our website, the80smoviepodcast.com for extra materials about Bright Lights, Big City, both the book and the movie, as well as other titles in the vintage contemporary book series. The 80s Movie Podcast has been researched, written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens for idiosyncratic entertainment. Thank you again. Good night. (laughs)